Try that again with a mic. Good morning, Kent Cove. It's good to be together. This morning, our text comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to go all the way through verse 32. Luke writes, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his sentences, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. 
But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our journey through Lent and our journey with Jesus towards Jerusalem in what is known in Luke as the travel narrative. So these are all stories that are told as Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and towards his passion. And so as I was thinking about that, I remembered that I had come across this story a while back that is travel-related. So I saw this headline uh, when I was on the interwebs, and it grabbed my attention because it said, man leaves wife at petrol station for six hours. I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting. So apparently, there was a gentleman in, uh, and this happened in Italy, uh, his wife and his young, his young child, they were on vacation, traveling home to Germany, and they stopped at a service station for gas, and he got out, got the gas, got back in, took off, and left his wife behind and did not realize it. When I first read that, I thought, oh, dude's in some trouble. Uh, But as you read the story, basically what happened was apparently uh, the wife was had been sitting in the back with the young child. The husband didn't know that she had gotten out to use the restroom, and he took off without her. Lame excuse, but there you go. He traveled uh, for quite a while. Uh, Finally, they called the the police uh, because the lady you know, was stranded. She didn't have any papers. She didn't have any identification, anything with her. But they tracked her husband down eventually, 340 kilometers north of where they had been. And so then he had to turn around and come back and pick up his wife. Now, I imagine, I've been married for 30 years, so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to guess that there was maybe some muttering, maybe some grumbling, maybe some murmuring at that gas station while uh, the wife waited for her husband to come back and get her. I'm imagining that there was some pointed conversation when he did get back and pick her up. All that to say, traveling can be difficult, right? And as we're traveling, as we're working through these texts, as Jesus is traveling towards Jerusalem, it's important to kind of pay attention to some of these details. This detail that, there, that this, these stories are told as Jesus continues to move ever more steadily towards Jerusalem. It's also important to note the context of the stories in the text and how they're told. And one of the things that's important to note is Jesus has a way, especially in this section of Luke, of telling stories where all the wrong people are at the party. 
So in chapter 14, there's the parable of the feasts. This is that parable where Jesus tells about the the guy who's going to throw a great party, and he goes and he invites all the right people. They all turn him down for all these lame reasons. So he tells his servants, go out and get the broken and the lame, compel them to come in. And so then his feast is filled, but it's filled with all the wrong people, right? And so then as we come to this section of text, we hear that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are um, not happy about the company that Jesus is keeping. The text tells us that they were murmuring or muttering that this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now that word muttering is an important word because it's a callback to the Old Testament story. It's a callback specifically to the Exodus. It's the same word that is used in Exodus 16 when the people of Israel, having been delivered from Pharaoh and 400 years of slavery, about six weeks in, are unhappy about their accommodations and are saying it would have been better if we had died in Egypt. They were muttering. And so this is what's happening. These uh, teachers of the law and Pharisees are murmuring and grumbling and muttering about the people, the company that Jesus is keeping. Now, a little bit of context for that is many of you or some of you may be familiar with the idea of table fellowship. So in the Jewish culture, culture, table fellowship was very important. And the idea and the teachings of the Pharisees and the understanding of the religious culture at the time And let's be honest, maybe some of this still exists for us in our own uh, culture as well, is that welcoming equals condoning at best and contamination at worst, right? So if you welcome people who are not the right kind of people, who are the sinners and and eat with them, that it it at best is saying, well, it doesn't really matter what they do, or at worst, it's making you sinful just by being with them. And the idea for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is that the proximity to these unclean people makes them unclean. In other words, they contaminate us and make us not uh, appropriate company for God, right? But Jesus Jesus operated with the understanding that not only is that not true, but that the exact opposite is true. That through relationship and table fellowship and hospitality, the hospitality of Jesus, these lost people, these sinners, might just get found. These sinners might just get healed. These people might just get restored because of their proximity to Jesus. Rather than them contaminating him, he is healing them. Now, so this is the context that Jesus tells these three parables in. And it's in response to this murmuring. Now, personally, I've never experienced such murmuring because in the modern church, we don't murmur, right? There's never, there's, I mean, that's out of date. That's just not how we do it, right? But, and we see that Jesus in other places approaches that kind of murmuring differently. We'll come back to that in a minute. But this time, in response to the murmuring, Jesus doesn't respond with, 
like the tendency might be to come right at it and say, all right, well, let's have a conversation then. Let's talk about what our goals and objectives are. Let's talk about our mission statement. Let's talk about our vision and values. Let's talk about and really, you know, let's mix it up a little bit. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, so there was a guy who had a hundred sheep. And he tells these parables. Now, listen to what the first parable, the parable of the sheep, just three verses. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So Jesus serves up in in this short parable, notice on the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that God is very much concerned with finding those lost people. And oftentimes when we tell these parables, that's where we focus. We focus on the ones like the prodigal son who has wandered off and lived in wild, you know, wasted his inheritance in wild living, but has a great testimony to tell when he comes back. We like to focus on that side. But Jesus is sending a message here that can easily get overlooked. Eugene Peterson suggests, and I think he might be onto something here, that because we are in the midst of this travel narrative in the Gospel of Luke, that these uh, Pharisees and teachers of the law that are muttering against Jesus are actually disciples. Because, or at the very least, they're traveling with Jesus, right? It's because they're in Samaria, which where no good Pharisee or teacher of the law would hang out other than if they were with Jesus, And so as they were going, Peterson's suggestion is that perhaps these were disciples or people who were checking out this rabbi and what he was teaching. His point is to say that they are not bad people. Because oftentimes when we read the Gospels, the Pharisees can kind of turn into our favorite whipping boys in the the text, right? Because they're easy to pick on. Oh, they were so so self-righteous. They were so this. They were so that. Now, the hard part is, is if we pay close attention to our own context, we realize that we in the evangelical church look an awful lot more like the Pharisees than we might like to admit. And what I mean by that is the Pharisees are the ones who are very concerned with doing it right. They want to take the Scriptures seriously. They want to, do, they want to live life in the, way, you know, in the right way. And that's, a, that's an okay impulse as far as it goes. But Peterson's point is that they're not bad people. He says that they're good people that are scared. Perhaps they're uncertain or anxious. Jesus is coming at things from a very different direction than they're used to. And it's causing them to question some of these, you know, kind of central ways of understanding that they have. Like, you know, hanging out with sinners makes you unclean. And Jesus is like, oh no, we're going to hang out with the sinners and we're going, to, we're going to bring them good news, right? Now, to be fair, perhaps the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, maybe they're concerned about the direction that, they're, uh, that the 
that the Jewish nation is taking, that their people are not taking the Scriptures seriously enough. They're making bad decisions. Maybe attendance at the temple was declining. Maybe fear and anxiety had overwhelmed their compassion. As I mentioned before, Jesus doesn't always take this creative approach to addressing this issue. And this, I think, actually shows that Jesus is a little gentler with these Pharisees and teachers of the law than he is with the Pharisees in Matthew 23, where he pronounces the woes on them. If you ever want to see Jesus like light somebody up, that's where you want to go, Matthew 23. Here's a little taste. Matthew 23:15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. <laughs> Jesus is not playing around, right? And so in that instance, Jesus is calling the Pharisees out, and he's doing that aggressive, come right at it thing, which makes me think that Peterson might be onto something with these Pharisees and teachers of the law at least being curious and following Jesus, if not outright disciples, and that they're scared and anxious about what's happening because they don't understand it. In Matthew, Jesus condemns these Pharisees and teachers of the law because they become more concerned with making converts to their understanding of how it is that you are Jewish, how it is that you follow God. They're more concerned about their interpretation and understanding of the law than they were about seeing the broken restored, the lost found, the hurting healed. And so Jesus calls them to account. And perhaps as he tells these stories, in fact, I'm certain that as he tells these stories and as they, the three of them hang together, these, the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost sons, we start to see Jesus play some themes that are important for the Pharisees to understand. These three stories draw the listener in, and as they continue, we begin to experience the joy that Jesus is talking about, that God has over seeing the lost found and restored to relationship. As one covenanter, Carl Olson, years ago wrote, the kingdom of God is a party, and everyone is invited. Profligate son and elder brother and elder son alike. Lost or, or tax collector and sinner and Pharisee and teacher of the law are all invited to the table. One of the things that struck me as, we, as I looked at these three parables as a unit, oftentimes we break these parables out, right? We'll look at one at a time. And there's a wealth of uh, stuff in them and images and all that kind of stuff, but they really hang as a unit. And there's some things that are really interesting about that. The first is, is that we see uh, an escalating intensity of loss in these three parables, right? The first parable, it's, it's, you know, if you're into numbers, I think I did these right. I'm not a math guy. It's 1%, one out of 100, right? The second one, it's 10%, one out of 10. The last one, it's 100%. Because both sons are lost. So, and, but the intensity of the loss does not equal the intensity of the search. Did you notice that? If you think about the parables, the one out of a hundred, the shepherd leaves the 99, puts them all at risk to go find the, the one that's lost. And when he finds them, he throws a party. 
because he's so excited that he has the one out of the hundred. Then the woman loses one coin out of ten, and she basically, you know, it says that she lights a lamp and sweeps her house. I would paraphrase that as she tears the house apart looking for her coin, right? It's like that when you lose that, your keys or whatever, and you're pulling cushions, and you're, she tears the house apart to find this coin, and when she finds it, she throws a party because she's so overjoyed that the lost is found. Then you get to the, the kind of the big climax of the story, the prodigal son. And the way we always, you know, maybe tell the story is we always focus on that prodigal son. That's, you know, the name of the parable is usually the prodigal son. I would say a better name might be the lost sons or the waiting father. Because it's not just the prodigal son who's lost. And that's what the story communicates. But what does the father in that story do? With the prodigal son, he doesn't go to the far-off country searching for him. He doesn't tear apart his, apart his house. He simply waits and watches. I think it's a great lesson for us as we think about the way that God works, that he takes different approaches in different situations. And so a word to those of you, because I recognize that oftentimes there are those among us who are experiencing that kind of loss. The kind of loss where someone close to us is wandering or lost or hurting or whatever it might be. And we're just not sure how to help. And sometimes the impulse to go out and like, you know, search for them is so strong. But I think there's a lesson for us in what the waiting father does in waiting. It reminded me of a scene from one of my favorite American short stories, A River Runs Through It. Uh, the movie adaptation of this movie is one of my favorite movies. And there's a, a scene where um, the reverend in the story, Reverend McLean, Presbyterian minister in Montana, two sons, you know, the elder brother is very, it's, the allusions are there, right? To, the, to this parable. And the younger son is having a hard time. He's lost. And in the movie, the Pat, Reverend McLean gives a sermon and he says this, each one of us here today will at one time in our lives look upon a loved one who is in need and ask the same question. We are willing to help, Lord, but what if anything is needed? For it is true we can seldom help those closest to us. Either we don't know what part of ourselves to give, or, more often than not, the part we have to give is not wanted. And so it is those we live with and should know who elude us. But we can still love them. We can love completely without complete understanding." So a word to those of you who are in that situation. Love completely, even though you don't understand. Take a lesson from the waiting Father and just wait and watch and be willing to receive when they come home. As we look at this, these parables, the beauty of the good news of Jesus is that it is for everyone. It is for both the son who wanders off 
as much as it is the son who stomps off to the front porch and refuses to come into the party. Right? You see, Jesus is telling these parables to this, this group of Pharisees and, and teachers of the law who are upset with his behavior and who he is welcoming. And you get the sense that they very clearly are not lost. And they know they are not lost. In fact, not only are they not lost, but they don't lose things. And they're not just going to stand here and watch while Jesus goes wandering off looking for all these lost people. They're going to stand on that porch and they're going to wait until this father calls this party off because it's not fair. And Jesus is telling this parable so that they might have their eyes open and be drawn in and realize that they are just as far away from the Father as the, as the wandering uh, son was, as the son who went off to the far country was. They are just as lost. The 99 are just as lost as the one. The, one, the, ten, the nine are just as lost as the one. We're all lost and we're all in need of that restoration that Jesus offers. And that is, friends, the good news. That is why Jesus invites us to the table. He invites us to the table and he says, Welcome to the feast. Whether you are the son who wandered to the far off land or whether you're the elder brother standing on the porch, please come into the party. You'll notice that in the parable, it's brilliant how Jesus closes it, right? We don't know if that son ever decided to join the party or not, even though it was all his. And so, friends, I invite you to consider that as we come to the table. Please join me in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you that you don't wait for us to get our lives figured out. Whether they're a mess or whether, whether everything is in its place, God, help us to recognize our lostness and open our hearts to you. Amen. A couple of things as we come to the table. I invite you to, uh, if you're at home, get your, have your elements with. And if you're in the room, you uh, receive the elements as you came in. Please hold on to those. We will take those together as one body. And uh, I will make that clear as we get to that point. It is now our sacred privilege to celebrate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. All who humbly put their trust in Christ and desire His help that they may lead a holy life, all who are truly sorry for their sins and would be delivered from them, all who would walk in love with their neighbors and intend to live a new life, following the commandments of God and walking from now on in His holy ways, are invited to draw near with faith and to receive this holy sacrament. Brothers and sisters, come to this sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak. 
not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin you stand in constant need of his mercy and help. Come, not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and to pray for the Spirit. Please join me in prayer. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Receive these words of assurance. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen us in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen. Let us now confess our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they were delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he had blessed it, he gave thanks, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembering me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Please join me in prayer. O Lord of all, we offer our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you, presenting to you from your creation this bread and this cup. Gracious God, we pray that you will send your Holy Spirit on these gifts, that they may be the sacrament of the body of Christ and the blood of the new covenant. Unite us to your Son in his death and resurrection, that we may be acceptable through him, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In the fullness of time, put all things in subjection under your Christ, and bring us to that heavenly feast where with all your saints we will be gathered in glory everlasting through Jesus Christ our Lord, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, and the author of our salvation. 
by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. Let us pray in the words that our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Is not the bread which we break a participation in the body of Christ? Is not the cup we drink a participation in the new covenant in the blood of Christ? The gifts of God for the people of God. Eat and drink with thanksgiving. 